Welcome back to the Plowcast. This is the sixth episode in our new series linked to our vows issue. I'm Susanna Black Roberts, senior editor at Plow. And I'm Peter Momsen, editor in chief at Plow. In this episode, Susanna will be speaking with rabbi and philosopher Zohar Atkins, and then we'll both be taking your questions. Zohar Atkins is the founder of Etz Sada, a center for existential Torah. He is a fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. He holds a DPhil in theology from Oxford, where he was a Rhodes Scholar, and a Samika from the Jewish Theological Seminary, where he was a Wexner Graduate Fellow. He's a published poet and is the author of An Ethical and Theological Appropriation of Heidegger's Critique of Modernity, 2018, and Nineveh, 2019. Welcome, Zohar. So we are going to be talking today about, you're, you're both a rabbi and also a kind of, um, I would say, great books generalist. And I'd love to hear from you just about uh, essentially vows and oaths and covenant in both um, the biblical context and in sort of our various philosophical traditions. Um, So lead me through some of what you've been thinking about. Obviously, um, vowing is important in the context of covenant because God promises Noah after the flood that God will not destroy the world again by water. Uh, and gives us a sign uh, in the form of a rainbow, Mm -hmm. which I guess if you're anthropomorphizing God, you might say that that rainbow exists not just to assure Noah, uh, you know, to calm him down after his PTSD, but also in a sense to assure God uh, that God is really committed Mm -hmm. to preserving the world from apocalypse. Mm -hmm. So why would God need to take a vow? Again, this is all just where you know, with a caveat that we're projecting onto God here. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, God wants a sign for God's self to say, you know what, don't succumb to your instinct here or your emotional temperament, like conquer it, sort of take, you know, have big eyes and and take the bigger picture. Like you want the world to exist. Like you're an optimist, even though like obviously humanity does press your buttons at times. This is like classical theists everywhere just got like a little nauseous and like freaked out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'm giving this within the framework of like reading the Bible as a story. All right, we're not going to get into that quite. Um, but I do want to like, I, I don't know, I want to come on to your podcast at some point and just argue theology with you in general. So why don't we uh, head from there into kind of the the way that the um, various people in the, the classical philosophical traditions have dealt with uh, vows and oaths? I think of two traditions within philosophy on oaths. One is Nietzsche, mm-hmm. who says that in a sense, the ability to keep a promise is the sign of mastery. It's the mm-hmm. sign of being mature. Mm-hmm. And so promising is a source of dignity. Mm-hmm. Uh, may, maybe that's a weird thing to, to get from Nietzsche, that promising is a source of dignity. But it's not, it's not just that you make the promise, it's that you keep the promise. So mm-hmm. the, the distinction between the, the human and the animal or the, the master and the slave, to mm-hmm. use sort of uh, the retro language of Nietzsche, is that those who have real power and real agency in life not only make promises, but sort of keep to their promises no matter, no matter what. Mm-hmm. And that suggests, obviously, that there are constraints and limits placed upon human will and, and human control, but that sort of ignoring those limits or finding a way to defy them is the, is the task. 
it seems to me that that uh, part of Nietzsche is related to the line from Zarathustra, all joy wants eternity, wants deep, deep eternity. The scriptural counterpart is God has put eternity in the hearts of men. And just the idea that your joy wants to be like grasps after the eternal and that like vowing um, or swearing oaths is one way to um, like fix our hearts in the eternal. Absolutely. I mean, I think, so there's maybe two ways to think about the eternal here. There's the genuinely philosophically rigorous understanding, and then there's the maybe colloquial. I think the colloquial view is that it's going to last a really long time beyond the range of what we normally take to be the scale of measurement. But like, sort of as long as it lasts beyond your lifetime, <laughs> or for most of your lifetime, that's you chalk it up to eternity. It's a rounding error you know, in favor of eternity. I think that when people, at least subjectively, when I sort of have that joy wants eternity thing, I'm really thinking about philosophical eternity. Like, I think that there's like, I don't, I don't subjectively see a difference. Um, And I also, I certainly think that like beyond your lifetime or close to the end of your lifetime, or those are two radically different things. I mean, think about marriage vows, like keeping a marriage vow until like the year before you die is crap and keeping a marriage sure. vow until you die is keeping the marriage vow. Fair. Um, let me clarify a little bit on this point. So when Plato and I suppose the ancient Greeks talk about perfection, mm-hmm. they talk about things which don't change and also don't come to an end. Mm-hmm. So the heavenly bodies or God are perfect Um, in contradistinction to sort of terrestrial things Mm -hmm. because they don't change, whereas we do. Mm -hmm. And that turns into the concept of eternity at some later point where Mm -hmm. eternity becomes used synonymous, Mm -hmm. synonymously with sort of above the fray. Mm -hmm. But in the modern period, sort of the existentialists hold on to the concept of eternity. Um, And similarly in like Leo Strauss, like sort of the great, ideas and the great questions are transhistorical mm-hmm. rather than just a product of their time, but they're still a function of humanity, which is rooted in history. That's different than the platonic view, which is like that there's just no drama up there. I think, see, I think again, there's like a third way that you're, that, that neither of those um, at all encompasses, which the, which is the idea that like, I mean, sort of, obviously this is getting into the idea of like, what does it, what does divine aseity mean? Like, what does it mean that God is, unmoved um when we also see him having sort of like emotions and passions and or apparent passions and obviously this is massively complicated by christian theology eternity in the sense that strauss would mean it like the eternal questions or like the you know the the transhistorical human questions as being eternal by root by seeing them as rooted in human nature um and so you know they don't they don't pass away from one era to another. They always kind of pop back up again because they're rooted in human nature. That's actually a quite limited vision for what eternity would mean because human nature is like, it seems to me that like what at least Nietzsche was talking about is that human nature has a desire to go beyond itself in a way that, that like, if you're just saying that like, um, you know, my, my desire for eternity is like, rooted in human nature, but nothing beyond that, that's actually not answering my desire for eternity. You know, what are, what are those actual questions? A lot of them at least seem to point towards is 
you know, humans looking for a good that's not just human um, and looking for something solid that's not just human. I totally agree that that's what we desire. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> in terms of the hermeneutics of Nietzsche, I'm not sure mm -hmm. uh, where I would come down on that because mm -hmm. I think of Nietzsche as somebody who espoused a doctrine of do what makes you feel vital mm -hmm. and joy is important. Mm -hmm. to feeling vital. It's a sign. It's a symptom and a cause of, of good health mm -hmm. as opposed to, let's say, I don't know, depression or something. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, Nietzsche was not a transcendentalist mm -hmm. as, as I understand him. And mm -hmm. so I don't think he would make joy conditional upon mm -hmm. achieving eternity. But I think it's kind of an as if posture where mm -hmm. you just say, live your life as if you can make an eternal difference, as if um, in any given moment, you feel that what you're doing has cosmic significance, but you know, it doesn't. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure that like you should bank too much on it because then you'd just be a, a metaphysical person. And that's kind of a sign of a weak mind <laughs> to yeah, escape yeah. from the thing, from, from what's in front of you, the situation and sort of try to posit some Archimedean point from which you can get abstract truth on it. See, this is why I think that, that Nietzsche is just not good enough. I mean, this is why I think that all those kinds of existential solutions aren't good enough, because the existential questions seek something beyond an existential solution, right? Like all of the kind of internal, I want eternity, I want to, through, you know, I want to be bound to something that's beyond human, like it's not just it's it's by definition like what that if you're taking that question and that desire seriously it's not going to be solved by an existential move it's not going to be solved by saying i'm going to decide i'm going to will to act as though that's the case because if you know that it's not then it's not good enough i generally agree with that point but if i had to steal man sort of the modernists i think they would they would say that they do answer that their prayer is answered um, it's just not, it's just not answered in the way that a classical person would recognize as legitimate. In what way do you think that they're, so for example, the desire for eternity, um, is answered? I think that Kant would say that that desire is answered in the experience of freedom that's revealed by my obedience to the categorical imperative. Right. But that's still, that, that's that's kind of doing an incurvatus and say thing. Like that's still not getting outside you. And the whole point is to get outside you. It depends how you define outside. So <laughs> I, I, I think that if you're a realist, it's insufficient, uh -huh. but um, this is, you know, this is the whole debate of, of modern philosophy. So I, yes, you're in good company with, with many who criticize Kant mm -hmm. and come after him. But I think, and that, and that, by the way, explains some of the, conservative romantics who, who say who actually say you know what Kant is wrong you can get you can get outside of yourself you just mm -hmm. can't get outside of yourself through reason mm -hmm. you can get outside of yourself through intuition mm -hmm. uh or you have Kierkegaard for example who's you know read Hegel mm -hmm. and was sitting in Schelling's lectures and is you know says to himself you know what I think I'm going to take this absurd leap of faith because mm -hmm. that's the only way I can get out well so the rabbi's um, ima often imagine heaven to be a courtroom, which mm -hmm. is just amazing. I, so, I mean, I guess it explains why many Jews become lawyers if you yeah. want to <laughs> be a cultural determinist. But um, actually, they got that metaphor from the sophists, from, mm -hmm. from Hellenistic thought. And so basically, you go to heaven and it's an argument mm -hmm. um, between 
I don't know, the, pe- the, the forces that want to preserve the world and the forces that want to destroy the world. And God is sitting there as the judge, like adjudicating between the two. I mean, this is, it may be like a, a sort of sophist vision, but it's also the vision of Job, which is like, you know, as far as I know, the oldest book in the Bible. Like that's exactly what the heavenly court looks like in Job. Let's pivot to human vows okay. for a second. What does the Torah and rabbinic tradition think about making a vow? So on the one hand, you might say, well, it's a very great thing to make a vow. It's a sign, as Nietzsche said, that you have the desire to be committed over a long run. You're also committing to having a kind of, we call it internal coherence or integrity in terms of your identity. So there's a lot to be said in favor of vowing. And some people were inclined in the ancient world to make vows as a form of self-motivation. Like I know myself well enough to know that if I just but you know rely on habit to brush my teeth every morning that's not going to cut it mm-hmm. but if i vow <laughs> to god uh-huh. that i'm going to brush my teeth every morning then it becomes a serious offense if i mm-hmm. don't i'm violating one of the 10 commandments and taking god's name in vain uh and so that's good it's good to vow right mm-hmm. but there's another aspect to vowing that's terrible mm-hmm. which is one how do you actually know that you're going to keep your vow things mm-hmm. come up and then you've elevated uh, a deed that was just neutral mm-hmm. to something that if you don't do it is terrible. Mm-hmm. Why would you want to, why would you want to create such a world? Right. And you see that. Yeah. The 600, you see that in the, thing. the 600, it becomes the 614th commandment, which is, I think it's, it's bad for a few reasons. So one is like, you see the story of, of Jephthah or Yiftah who, who, who vows to offer a sacrifice, not knowing what it's going to be. And it ends up, you know, that he's, he has to choose between sacrificing his daughter or not doing so and violating a vow. Mm-hmm. Um, that's bad. And then there's this, and then there's the aspect of vowing where you're base. It's basically solipsism mm-hmm. because like, imagine a person who, who makes such an intricate system of vows. I don't know. I vow not to step on the sidewalk cracks. I vow to only eat, uh, to only take my coffee after I eat my eggs, like mm-hmm. so, so idiosyncratic. And then you're living in this non-translatable world that you can't mm-hmm. share with other people mm-hmm. because you're trapped in the system of vows. It's like the beauty of the law as it's given is that it's a common language mm-hmm. that you can work within. But mm-hmm. once you start making tons of vows, now all of a sudden it's like a private language in a way I mean, that takes is, you out of the world. Yeah, this is actually fascinating because it sort of reminds me of, so one of the uh, weird things about my experience as a religious person or as a Christian is that I also have OCD, which is um, like obsessive compulsive disorder. And when I became, when I converted, that kind of did the thing, which it sometimes does, which has become scrupulosity, which really stinks. And um, so scrupulosity basically is, it's imagine like you make your own Torah and you kind of like have all these things that feel like they're your conscience and feel like they're things that you better do or you're going to be in trouble with God, but they're not conscience in the sense that they're not, you know, con- the, the etymology of conscience is knowing with. So this is not something you're not knowing with other people or with the faith community or with the tradition or, you know, with God's word. It's just a sort of solipsistic conscience. And so one of the things that you kind of have to do if, if this is something you struggle with is just be like, oh, no, that's just made up. That's not, that's not a real, that's not a vow. That's not an obligation. It's just my brain being weird. And it's like, it's interesting to sort of think of vows 
like impulsively made sort of flippant vows that you shouldn't have made because they're actually kind of locking you into this conscientious private world where you're not actually encountering God or other people and you're just like so worried about obeying all these things that you've sort of imposed on yourself that you can't actually kind of live properly like that that's actually an interesting way of thinking about it I hadn't really thought about that before yeah it really keys us in by the way to this debate that we you know this ongoing we we debate we have about individualism and how we should weight it against let's Uh say communitarianism or what Uh have you now I, I don't take a view that those two have to be opposed at all I think a good community is what with healthy individuals but um if you know, just to spell the dialectic, if, if you're sort of too into vowing, you become super idiosyncratic, right? You become so individual that there's, you have nothing in common, but if you're anti-vowing altogether, so then where's the room for sort of choice or self-expression? So in the Bible, like, let's say that you're the kind of person drawn to holiness as a vibe, but you're not born into the priestly class. And so you don't get to officiate in the temple. You know, that's, that could be a doozy. Well, thankfully, you could be a Nazarite. A Nazarite is basically the form of, I'm choosing to become priest-like. Uh-huh. And it gives you an avenue for doing that, a validated, legally recognized one for doing it. But uh-huh. maybe it's a concession to the fact that people are going to do this anyways. They were uh-huh. going to become scrupulous, yeah. <laughs> overly yeah. scrupulous. So instead of just allowing people to go and, and, and become scrupulous, you're like, you know what? Let's this is the playbook this. for Let's those people this. who can Yeah. If you if you're if you're getting if you're going to get really neurotic, at least get neurotic in the traditional way, and then there's a way that you can like then you eventually cut your hair and then you drink wine again and then you're you know unless you're a Nazarite for life, then you're set. So wh- why don't we talk a little bit about um, a- again about the kind of like um, the sort of the 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 tension between a kind of existentialist subjectivism and sort of its alternative. Um, and the role of vows in that in sort of more contemporary philosophy? I think of existentialism as a very broad tent. So Mm -hmm. there are religious existentialists and there are secular existentialists, Mm -hmm. right? Secular existentialists like Sartre um, think that there's no transcendence whatsoever Mm -hmm. and that human beings must sort of create the reality that they want to live in. And so the most holy act, if you want to still use the language of holiness, is the act of decision or the act of choice. Um, but it's a choice to make the world in your own image in a way. Mm-hmm. Hell is other people, <laughs> yeah. you know, intersubjectivity is a thing you have to deal with, but like ultimately you want to transcend, you want to transcend your socialized obligations to other people and decide on who you want to be in relationship to your own most sense of freedom, mm-hmm. which you know, your own most sense of possibility. Mm-hmm. Where does that come from? I don't know. Uh, you know, I'm not a Sartre scholar. It's an interesting question whether that, if, if that is even a secular position or if it's just a kind of religious position that's taking the figure of God, mm-hmm. and just putting it in the interiority. Yeah. So yeah. it's basically just like Luther on steroids, if you will. Oh, you again, know, if you, if you it's wanna, so wrong be, of you to think of Luther. If you want to be <laughs> Catholic about it, you might say that Sartre is simply the logical conclusion of listen to your conscience. Um, oh my God. <laughs> conscience means thinking with knowing this <laughs> okay but but similarly and sorry you're listening to your uh in itself uh rather than your for itself if you will again mm-hmm. i'm probably i'm probably butchering it but there's a way of you know the self the self has d- multiple voices mm-hmm. that comprise it and so 
I think you can get to the conscience or Freud can get to conscience without positing that the thing you're thinking with is God. You could just you could just take the word God if you want to still be holy about it and rebrand, I don't know, the voice of your mother telling you, hey, why don't you call me? I don't know. Like uh where um Isn't that literally taking there, God's name in vain. How how can you just be like how, this is like <laughs> literal idolatry? How can you not see that this is like the wrong thing? You can't like just call something that you want to call God, God. Oh, I'm not, I'm not recommending this. I'm just describing, <laughs> no, I'm I, just describing I modern know, philosophy. I know, I know. But, but, but just to be a little bit, you know, I like to be contrarian just to defend it. Would you say, isn't it idolatry? I mean, yes, it's idolatry. If, um, if you think that the self is not God, mm-hmm. but if it's not idolatry, if you think that God has somehow put a spark of God's self within every self mm-hmm. and that your access to God is exclusively or primarily through that uh-huh. spark, in mm-hmm. which case you actually have a religious obligation to be yourself, however you want to think about that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if being yourself means that you're going to go like be a hobo who plays violin on the corner because that's your truth or whatever it is, mm-hmm. like, that that's just as monastic as going to a monastery, you know, trying to being a struggling artist and like having a bohemian life is a kind of, is a kind of service. If you feel that that is your divine truth. Yeah. So two things, vows, you seem to have a sort of like very um, like vows kind of in a way belong to the secular in a weird, in a weird sort of way, because vows belong to, or at least to the, um, the non-religious, if by religious you mean communal and unchosen, because vows are kind of like a an ultimate expression of voluntarism in a certain way. Do I understand that correctly? Yeah, no. Um, there was some slippage in the terms you used that I might I might quibble with, but, but broadly, yes, I think that um, expressing yourself leads to vowing. Mm-hmm. And that we have examples of people who seek self-expression in the Bible mm-hmm. um, and the Bible has a mixed view of those people. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, there's something kind of rebellious, mm-hmm. if you want to say, about vowing mm-hmm. relative to the pre-existent norms. Mm-hmm. But I-, I wouldn't say that that's purely secular because I think that it's a religious value yeah. as well to yeah. self-express and that God creates us to be individuals. So yeah. I don't think that being an individual necessarily means egotism or solipsism. Yeah. But then like the totality of the human experience of the world includes both kind of the kind of gift aspects of reality where it's unchosen. You have unchosen obligations that you're born into. You know, you don't get to decide which parents, you know, which mother and father you need to honor in order to obey that commandment. You don't get to, um, decide to kill yourself because your your life is a, a, both a gift and an obligation that's laid on you without your choice. Um, you know, you don't get to decide that you actually would like to disobey the commandments and worship another God other than the real God, because, you know, you, this, this, there are many things that you just don't get to choose. Um, but at the same time, there, part of creation is this kind of... Um, sense of humans as, as sub-creators, as made in the image of God. And in that sense, I think that both reason and will are parts of that. And so we can like, 
vowing is a kind of a is, is a kind of subcreation, which is also a, is a kind of contrasting but not opposing part of reality to the un, unchosen given aspects of the world. Does that make sense? It does make sense. I'm gonna here's here's how I would reframe it slightly. So. <laughs> In the classical paradigm, you have pre-given gifts and obligations as you described. Mm -hmm. And then vowing is like an add-on. You have mm -hmm. what in Judaism is called reshut. You have permission to mm -hmm. do certain kinds of vows. But um, vowing is kind of like Pandora's box. Mm -hmm. So once you open the door to mm -hmm. a permissible vow mm -hmm. and you flex that vowing muscle, mm -hmm. I personally think that it leads to a culture of vowing, mm -hmm. which then sees the pre-given, pre-established world mm -hmm. as also up for renegotiation. Mm -hmm. So although um, you could be a classical person mm -hmm. who, for example, thinks that you don't have, that you, you have no choice as to whether you should honor your mother and father, mm -hmm. I think that once you say you can also vow to honor your teacher, mm -hmm. who is not your parents, mm -hmm. it might be the case that in 2000 years that leads to the cultural revolution uh -huh. and you say i can vow to honor my teacher and also vow not to honor my parents uh, and my vow can override sure but can't you just say an abuse of a thing doesn't mitigate its use like isn't that just the bad version like everything has a bad version i suppose if, if you think that vowing is some kind of like virtue or attribute characteristic, but I think of it as a technology. I don't really trust that society is going to be able to regulate technology well. I kind of think that the most extreme versions are going to become the ones that are, are culturally dominant, even if, you know, yes, you can have a religious microculture that opposes that and says we need to be moderate here. That's bad. But in terms of where we're going, I think once you elevate choice and decision and I can make reality in my own image, which is a religious value. It seems like secularism does inevitably come from that. And so I guess if I'm being super deterministic, I would say like the being created in a divine image thing kind of inevitably leads to secularism. I, for, with you on one side of me and like the Catholics on the other side of me, you're just driving me up the wall here. Anyway, so here's the thing though, like first of all, taking determinism in that way, doesn't that kind of mitigate the whole concept of the vow? Because the the the, the point of vows, as you had been describing them as, as a kind of existentialist would understand them, is that there's no such thing as determinism. Like, you can, you know, will reality to be whatever you want it to be. So why not just will reality to be such that even with the technology of vows, it doesn't eventually lead to secularization? That's a fantastic point, and I have a lot of cheeky things to say in response to it. So let me give you a kind of joke, and I don't know if I stand by this philosophically, but there's a, a story about a rabbi, you know, a very pious person who was robbed. Mm -hmm. And as the thief is running away with his wallet, he says to the person, I want you to take the wallet. I, I give it to you. Mm -hmm. um, right? And I think there's a, there's a couple <laughs> ways to read that anecdote. One is is he's he's so pious he doesn't want the person to have a sin on his tab mm -hmm. like he want he he wants to take that away from the person mm -hmm. uh, that you know you shouldn't feel bad about this I guess another is just the psychological reading which is like it's a cope right yeah. it's still bad to be robbed yeah. but if you're going to be robbed you 
you want, don't you want to rebrand it as a choice? Because it feels worse if you say I was coerced into this. Uh-huh. So I think actually both are true. And so to relate the parable to God, like, did we, did we rob God? Did we take God's wallet? And that's what secularism is. Or did God say, as we're running away with the wallet, you know what, like, fine, you can have it. I think we're going to have to wrap up there because it's really fascinating that you brought up that particular anecdote because it is obviously exactly the scenario or very close to the scenario of Jean Valjean and the priest um, in Les Miserables, which is actually something that that um, anecdote was the subject of our first podcast that we did with Catherine Kuiper, who wrote a wonderful piece about the vows of Les Miserables um, in the issue. And obviously the way that that works in in the novel is that Jean Valjean steals the priest's candlesticks um, and you know the the cops bring him back to the priest and say that we found this guy with your candlesticks and the priest you know it's not the scenario that you described because the the guy because Jean Valjean is now in you know in custody of the um, you know the gendarme um, but he says no actually I gave them to him uh, let him go and the priest is taking on that loss. He's choosing. He's choosing to take on that loss in order to free Jean Valjean. But by doing that, he imposes a vow on Jean Valjean. He said, um, he says, remember that you have sworn um, your soul to God. And Jean Valjean, there's this line in, in the novel where it says, Jean Valjean can't remember having sworn. Like, what, what did the priest mean by this? And the priest basically in this act of grace in this sort of self-sacrificial act of grace and taking on in, in reframing this theft as a gift, he's kind of like bought a vow. He's vowed on Jean Valjean's behalf that from now on his life belongs to God. Um, which is a kind of like, is a fascinating in light of the way that you use that idea. Yeah, that's, that's a very deep, that's a very deep story. I'll just give another sort of side angle on it, which is we, we talked about the theft that's transmuted into a gift. Mm-hmm. You can also think about it in reverse where mm-hmm. how many p- times do people give gifts, not because they freely want to give those gifts, mm-hmm. but rather because they feel that it's, they ought to do that, mm-hmm. that thing. Um, you know, Marcel Mao is the anthropologist who wrote about gift giving culture mm-hmm. and like the sort of, uh, various ancient islands Mm -hmm. and how these gifts would travel from place to place and eventually come back to the place Mm -hmm. where they Mm -hmm. started Mm -hmm. suggests that like the gift giving is actually transactional. There's an expectation of reciprocity. Mm -hmm. So if that's the case and you're giving, you're giving a gift because you hope for some kind of return on that Mm -hmm. investment or you, Mm -hmm. you want a closer relationship as a, as a result is that really giving a gift or is that a kind of theft? What do you do yeah. with a, when your person sends you a gift and you don't want that gift or you don't want it from that person, but mm-hmm. now it's a bit uncomfortable to say, you know what, I don't really need that. Or, mm-hmm. you know, thanks for that gesture of wanting to be close to me, but you know what, like, I <laughs> actually, li- I actually liked our boundary. Yeah. So, I mean, so yeah. gift giving is not a neutral or only no. positive thing, just yeah, as I mean- stealing or coercing is, is I suppose, uh, not always contextually bad. It's, it's much more complicated. Yeah. I mean, that's the story of Javert, right? Like Jean Valjean gave him the gift of his life and didn't kill him, even though he had him in his, in his power. And Javert said, thanks for that gift, but I actually don't want it. I don't want my, you know, 
I don't want to be bound to you. I don't want, want to be the same kind of person as you. I don't want to live in a world where I have to forgive you and see you as my brother. And in fact, I don't want that so much that I also don't want the gift of my own life that God gave me. And so I'm going to kill myself. And that is kind of the end of, that is the kind of ultimate refusal of a gift. Anyway, why don't we wrap it up there? Thank you so much. This was awesome. Absolutely. I think, I think I'd like to redeem secularism a little bit, if that could be my parting message. Like there's, (laughs) there's two sets of tablets. Uh The original I think represents the classical ideal. Mm-hmm. The second represents, in a way, the modern one, mm-hmm. and the commentators suggest that both the 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 whole tablets, the second tablets, which are hum- written by humans, and the first, which are written by God but are shattered, need to be kept together in the ark. Sounds like a plan, Zohar. Thanks, Susanna. It's been wonderful. Uh, let's do this again at some point. Sounds good. Be well. And now we'll be taking your questions, dear listeners, and reflecting on what we've learned throughout this process. So, Pete, this is our uh, final segment of the final episode of this Vows uh, podcast. And uh, traditionally what we do in this segment is talk about what we've learned. What do you feel like you've learned about Vows through doing this issue of the magazine and through doing this issue, this this series of the Plowcast? Well, I guess this is one of the ones, Susanna, where I kind of feel like just affirmed in feeling that Vows and just generally big bet commitments uh, are really important and that not enough people are doing them and that people are way more worried about them than they should be, even though, you know, we know that they can go wrong. Uh, kind of like, what do you want to spend your life doing? Um, hedging against possible negative scenarios or doing that big thing that we uh, talked about at the beginning uh, based on G.K. Chesterton's defense on vows, which was kind of one of the inspirations of this issue, you know, do you want a big life or a little life? And so I've kind of been feeling throughout this, wow, I wasn't sure that an issue on vows was a good idea. And now I'm pretty sure. Does that sound just really self satisfied and complacent? I'm afraid it does, but, but I'm feeling, I'm pretty, I'm feeling affirmed. (laughs) Um, I think the thing that really hit me most, and it hit me um, kind of most actually at the the UK launch of this issue, which was in London a couple of days ago, when um, King Ho Lung, who wrote this wonderful sort of probably the most extensive theological um, piece in the issue on on vows and oaths, talked about um, just the basis of all vowing and the most important aspect of all vowing being God's faithfulness to himself and the idea that God, when he gives us, you know, when he, when he eternally generates the son, who is the word, in a sense, he's giving, um, he's giving his word to himself from even before creation. And that certainly in creation, all of our, like everything that we are, depends from moment to moment on God's fidelity to himself. And this is really dorky, but I was, for various reasons, um, thinking about the name Elizabeth. This is not entirely because of the queen, uh, although it's not unrelated to the queen. 
And I was trying to parse it in my head. And I was like, Beth, well, El is God. And then Beth is like, I think house because of Bethlehem. But it actually turns out that it means my God is an oath. Like that's what the name means. And the idea of God himself being an oath or being a promise, um, being a vow, I think is a kind of, I feel like that's something that's not going to leave me. That's something that's going to last, um, that, that I've learned from doing this issue of the magazine and doing this issue of the podcast. So I saw yesterday uh, in our community here, we celebrated the baptism of a young man uh, who simply asked for Christian baptism. He was not asking for membership in the Berthoff community, and yet he came and has been uh, a catechumen basically for the last uh, six months, intensively preparing for baptism. And we then went and he had uh, studied the Didache, the early Christian writing teaching from probably the first century, uh, and was very um, gripped by that early portrayal of the importance and significance of baptism, and even by kind of the practical details of it that, you know, if possible, it should be in cold running water. But if you don't have that, then just cold water is okay. And if, if, if you don't have that, then warm water is okay. You know, the main thing is to be baptized. <laughs> and yet, you know, for the early Christians, that symbol of full immersion of, of one's life uh, being given over, being given up, dying in the watery grave of baptism and being raised to a new life as a completely new person, um, you know, was what inspired him and he took his baptism vows uh, not entirely knowing exactly what that meant in terms of his future life, uh, but as a complete whole self-yielding, self-giving up in, in that sense of the great, uh, the great bet that any vow is, right? And so it reminded me, and I'll just throw this out here before we turn to the questions from our readers, of this uh, short excerpt from Ignatius of Antioch, uh, again, one of the first Christian writers, uh, the Bishop of Antioch, who wrote these famous letters to the various early Christian churches on his way to his own martyrdom uh, in Rome around 110 AD. And he says, in regard to baptism, uh, you are soldiers of Christ, uh, toil together, fight, run, suffer, rest, and rise up together as God's stewards, companions of his table and his servants. Please him who is your warlord, him from whom you will also receive your soldiers' pay. Let none of you desert the flag. So that's mm. kind of <laughs> the sense of all in Christianity that, you know, I've kind of learned over the process of talking about it in this series of podcasts and in putting together this issue. But we should turn to our uh, readers and listeners who had some great questions for us. Uh, some of them kind of pushing back against what we've just been saying, Susanna. So, you know, let's dive in. Sure. This is uh, from John Geffel, who um, basically he, he talked to, he brought up Jesus's teachings on making oaths, which he says, I believe is a form of a vow. He says, don't do it. Let your yes be yes and your no be no, adding that anything beyond this is of the devil. So how do we understand this in light of everything good that we've been saying about vows and in light of lots of kind of contradictory stuff in the New Testament. St. Paul makes a vow. We seem to um, be, marriage vows seem to still be a thing. How do, what do, what do we make of Jesus's words there? First of all, he's talking about an oath, not a vow. 
And a vow is precisely doing what Jesus said, which is saying, yes, uh, a vow is a solemn promise to God, and it's a solemn yes to God. So I don't see there's any problem there. Uh, Yes is yes, and it goes all the way through. And it's not just yes for today, but it's maybe yes for always. Yes, that comes at a great Mm -hmm. cost later on. Uh, Still a yes. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. How do you see that? And there's also the point, yeah. Well, there's also the point that, I mean, this is kind of the more reform take on it. This is, again, my role on this podcast. Um, that Jesus talks about not swearing by something less than God, like not swearing by Jerusalem, not swearing by the earth, you know, not swearing by the heavens, because these are all things that are less than God. Um, so I still, I'm still kind of rattling all these things around in my head. Um but I do think it is a kind of good thing to revisit. Um, that's one response anyway. This is another question kind of about the necessity of vows. Um, I don't think I have the name of the person who asked this, but basically, um, according to my understanding, scripture seems to indicate that commitment expressed in a vow is of no value unless it's motivated by love. And so this is this kind of comes as a, should we even be vowing? Shouldn't we just love instead? So what is, if if loving is what we should be doing, what do vows add to that? Well, you give your reform take on that this time first, so I can okay. like pick holes in it if okay. I disagree. <laughs> okay. I mean, I, this isn't so much a reform take. This is just my take as someone who just got married um, four and a half months ago. This is very Chesterton-y. Um, when... You know, when you want to, you know, when you love someone, you want to vow to them. You like that love wants to express itself in commitment. And our words are kind of our means of take of making those acts, um, those speech acts that are commitment. And, you know, we can't do this. It is dangerous to make a vow and we can't do it on our own and we shouldn't do it you know, by anything other than God himself or looking to anyone other than God himself to help us keep them. But it seems to me that it's that loving almost pushes you towards certainly romantic love kind of pushes you towards wanting to make a vow. I'm in favor of companionate marriage. I think if you're not, if you don't love someone, you probably shouldn't make a vow to them. Um, And if you don't, you know, if you don't, love God if you're not sort of if you're not sort of captivated by God's love and obviously don't be super subjective about this and obviously you're going to learn more um as you go through it but like baptism if you're doing it as an adult or confirmation is something that like you got to understand this as a response to God being lovable and as a response to God loving you first so obviously all of these vows are rooted in primarily in God's love that comes first and in um, the beloved being lovable. Yeah, so unfortunately I'm going to have to agree with you largely. And I, I think just since the, yeah. the person uh, asking this question brought up the word love, you know, our culture today is awash in the language of love. You know, love wins, equal love, you know, and... I think we would do well, actually, just to delve into some good literature about love. Uh, Love Mm -hmm. has always kind of been understood as implying a desire for the eternity of that love, right? I mean, that's a vow. 
-hmm. You know, it's the old Nietzsche mm -hmm. thing from Also Sprach Zaratustra, right? Um, all longing wills eternity, deep, deep eternity, right? You, mm -hmm. you love, mm -hmm. you want that to last forever. You, you're, you're, yeah. you're giving yourself forever. Uh, there's actually no turning mm -hmm. back. And uh, so, yeah, yeah, a vow is like the most natural thing to say uh, when you love yeah. another person. And, you know, uh, it's a totally scriptural thing to apply that same analogy of marriage to one's relationship to God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if you're freaked out, dear listener, about Nietzsche, let's just also remind ourselves that we've, we've been, we have it in scripture that God has put eternity in our hearts. This is something that like Nietzsche was, Nietzsche was wrong on some things, but he was not wrong on that. See, when he was, when he was wrong, he was very, very wrong. But when he was right, you know, he, he really had something going. <laughs> he, he really nailed it. Okay. So this is a question from Linda Wilson. And she asks, basically, um, we had, we'd had this discussion of post-liberalism. Um, and she said, uh, the definition of classical liberalism is a political tradition and a branch of liberalism that advocates free market and laissez-faire economic civil liberties under the rule of law with a special emphasis on individual autonomy, limited government, economic freedom, political freedom, and freedom of speech. And she says, by this definition, liberals and conservatives in America are both liberals. And so she basically seems to be implying you should you should just realize that actually we are all liberals and that is good. And you shouldn't you should stop talking about post-liberalism. Um, Susanna, are you a liberal? Uh, no, no, I'm not a liberal by this definition. I'm not a classical liberal. I am not a contemporary liberal. Um, yeah, so I, I think she's wrong. I, I, I mean, I don't think she's wrong about the definition of classical liberalism. I th think that she's wrong that everyone in America uh, is actually liberal. I'm not a liberal. Um, and I don't think that she should be either. And I don't think that she actually is. Um, so I bet you're a liberal in some things. I, I bet I bet you're liberal in some things, Susanna. Yeah. I, I bet you like free speech because we're having a podcast. I'm a liberal in some things. I bet you like, I do like freedom free of religion. I do like free speech. I bet you like freedom of I association. I like religion, freedom of conscience. Um, due process of law. I do like freedom of association. Right. Uh-huh. Those are good things. So. Those are also so, all so, things so, that. So how um, is she wrong? Because there's something, there's a sort of, all of those things that you mentioned have roots in a legal and political tradition that predates liberalism. What liberalism characteristically does is say that government in particular it should sort of um, be agnostic about the ends of life. And that government in particular um, is something that, you know, we all disagree on what the good is. Nobody really knows what the good is. So the government should actually sort of back off um, from having a vision of what human beings are, what the good is, and should just kind of conduct itself um, to keep a level playing field, to let people make, you know, pursue their own chosen goals um, be agnostic about whether those goals are good or bad and, um, you know, kind of just be, you know, either minimal or a little, a little bit less minimal, but basically shouldn't express an opinion about what human beings are, or what the good is. And I don't think that's true. Um, you know, people talk about not wanting to legislate morality, but I kind of think that if, you know, morality is kind of one of the only things that you really should legislate. If you're legislating whether or not people should eat like strawberry ice cream versus, you know, coffee ice cream, that's not a moral question. And so to legislate it is a little bit tyrannical. Um, 
but I think precisely not all moral questions should be legislated, but uh, there's a very strong case to be made that, you know, unless there's a real moral question involved, at least at some level, then a a government regulation about it is actually pretty tyrannical because it's infringing on what's a matter of taste. Um, So yeah, I think think the government, that power exists in order to pursue the good of those over whom it is exercised. And, you know, my personal power, my personal sort of self-control exists to pursue um, my telos, my end, and the good of my my friends and my my family. Um, the the power that any power that exists ought to be in pursuit of good, and I don't think that power is legitimate if it's exercised in any other pursuit. So for that reason, I'm not a liberal. Are mm. you a liberal, Pete? Well, see, just reading this, <laughs> I I have to think this is one of those great places where. You know, like coming at it from an Anabaptist point of view, we Anabaptists kind of like twist ourselves around, you know, like patting ourselves in the back here. Because long before John Locke was a gleam in Papa Locke and Mama Locke's eye, um, Anabaptists (laughs) believed in certain things that are identified as sort of liberal freedoms, right? Um, Limited government, Uh individual autonomy, certainly in matters of religion. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, Mm non-coercion by the state and matters where the state had no business uh, being. Um, And so I think a lot of that just boils down to Christian teaching about the dignity of each human being as as made in the image of God, and those things all follow from it, Uh, while also believing that government should govern toward the good. So, no, in that sense, in that carefully defined Anabaptist sense, I'm not a liberal, I'm an Anabaptist Christian. And in in honor of your Anabaptist convictions, I will also cop to the fact that I do believe in freedom of conscience, and I don't think that government should coerce uh, conversion or religious observance, because I don't think it's the kind of thing that can be coerced. So maybe that makes me a liberal, which is... Augustine was wrong, is what you anyway. just said. <laughs> yeah, I think he was wrong about about the Donatists. But, Thank you. you. Know. Okay. Um Here's another pair of responses. These aren't really questions. They're, they're more comments. Um, the first one was, you people only want rich white men to be Americans. Okay. Uh, was this based on anything we did or said, Susanna? No. What, no, I don't know. This, this, came, this came to me um, via, I think this was just like info at plow.com. I'm not sure what the what the what spurred this but it it's i'm not i was trying to parse you people because like i'm half jewish so i don't i don't think it was anti-semitic it could be like anabaptist it could be just like journalists um i you know if you i i anyway i just thought that was kind of funny um given that you know we're actually kind of pro-immigrant and uh definitely not just for rich white men uh now, if only rich white men were Americans, uh, there would where would be babies no, come from? Where would babies come from? So that's that was the other sort of aspect that I was puzzled about. Anyway, so this is this was the second one was um, by a reader whose name I won't say because I don't want to be mean. But I it was I saw it right after I saw that you people only want rich white men to be Americans email, which was dear sir. 
I ignore your left-wing agenda. I am shocked that a supposedly Christian site promotes such progressive and socialistic values. I read the prayers only. Articles supporting socialism and communism are abundant. Jabs at Trump, the right, America first, and conservatives are plentiful. You are no different than regular news sites, at, news sites and you should be ashamed. So should we be ashamed because we're socialists? Or should we be ashamed for other reasons? We should no doubt be ashamed for something. Um, <laughs> this is just great. Um, now, I'm trying to combine <laughs> these two comments. So socialism for rich white men who are Americans. Can we like put these all together? No, communism for rich white I, men who are Americans only? I am 100% sure that I have some Twitter followers who would be in favor of communism for rich white men who are Americans. I, they're not my favorite Twitter followers, but they exist. I guess that is theoretically possible. Yeah. Like, yeah. do we, at the risk of being tangentious, just want to say that, no, we don't believe that only rich white men should be Americans. And also that we are not socialists or communists uh, in the sense that this reader seems to think. Uh, I think there is an X, two and four form of communalism that is voluntary uh, and springs out of love between brothers and sisters in a Christian community, that is great. Uh, and that should also have economic aspects. And I think those should be more widely appreciated by uh, self-styled Christian conservatives. Uh, probably a, a few things that we all have to learn uh, from you know, the more demanding aspects of Christian discipleship. But... Uh, you know, I have friends who are Trump supporters and certainly who are right wing and possibly are America first. Um, definitely are conservative. So uh, I don't know what that proves, but yeah, I'm not jabbing I, at yeah, them all I'm, the time. I don't think. I, I might jab at some of them some of the time. I, yeah, I, I do think it is sort of important to make the distinction between state communism, which I think is horrible and bad and led to gulags, and I'm against all of it. I don't like it. I think it's bad. And voluntary community of goods, which arguably is something that Christians should be thinking more carefully about. Um, and, and, and then there's something which you might call socialism, although a sort of expanded welfare state is kind of what I would be in favor of, not massively and infinitely expanded, but sort of a more social democratic um, vision of what the role of the state might be while still sort of being attentive to potential perverse incentives and some kinds of goods of the market. Um, but yeah, that that is, I don't think, yeah, that that's kind of where we stand. I'm not sure it's a particularly satisfying or clear-cut stance. Um, oh, I think it's very clear-cut. So political communism okay. is bad. Uh, political communism is bad. But we believe that Christians do have a duty to the poor, to the marginalized, to you know anyone who is particularly struggling or oppressed in a society, and that that mm -hmm. should be addressed. And you know, with respect to the principle of subsidiarity that we don't need a massive worldwide government telling everyone what to do in every detail of their lives. But yet there yeah. are some places where the government should pursue the good of everyone within them. And so without solving all of political economy right now, um, I think we can move on from this comment. Uh, it is kind of nice to know that we can tick off both sides, though. Yep.
Uh, all right. Why don't you take question seven, Pete? Well, this is from uh, Brother Lindsay Rust, a Catholic religious brother, who is essentially asking, uh, do the Bruderhof communities think that being a Bruderhof member is a calling for everyone? So being a lifelong vowed member in the Bruderhof community, vowed to a life of you know, perf personal propertylessness, um, obedience, and chastity in a single or married state. Is that a calling for everybody? Well, Pete? I know, Suzanne, you should, <laughs> uh, dude, you know, <laughs> no, I don't believe that. Do I believe, however, that every human being is called to full discipleship of Christ, and that involves all the things the Sermon on the Mount speaks about, including... A uh, radical uh, way of separation from mammon and from ties to personal property uh, to radical economic and social and emotional solidarity to uh, certainly the commands of chastity to obedience to Christ's church. Yeah, I actually do think every person is called to that. Uh, whether they're aware of that calling whether the opening has come in their lives for them to take that step, uh, you know, only God knows. And that's the kind of thing that takes us back to that uh, liberalism, post-liberalism argument. I don't think you can force people into radical acts out of self-sacrifice of self for the sake of love because you can't force people to love. Uh, but yes, the calling to full Christian discipleship that embraces every sphere of life is one that is open to everyone. And I don't think there's any sort of easy get out of jail free cards. Oh, I'm just pursuing my vacation vocation um, as a, you know, well remunerated casino operator. And so I'm fine. Um, I don't think that cuts it. But to be clear, do you need to join the Bruderhof community, a specific movement that started in 1920 that has German roots and a few locations scattered around the globe? You know, obviously not. That's ridiculous. Well, that's good to know. I, although, you know, I have temptations that way on, on a daily basis. Um, anyway, all right. So we have we are now on to the final two questions. Uh, I forget who this is from. Someone who just tweeted it at us. What is your recommended reading for the soon-to-be-married? Suzanne, I think this is for you because you're okay. actually quite recently <laughs> in this state. Yeah. No longer, thankfully. I, uh, no, I'm, I'm no longer soon-to-be-married. I'm I'm now married. I'm very, very married. It's very weird. It's like it's an ontological change, I think. I think it's proper to say that. Like, I'm a wife. I wasn't a wife like six months ago. It's wild. Um, Got wifed up. Anyway, uh... So I'm going to recommend um, I'm going to recommend Wing to Wing or to Or by Leon and Amy Cass, which is a book of readings. And um, it's a big, giant book. And you can sort of it's it's readings from, you know, it's it's not all by them. It's just sort of you know edited by them. And you can sort of do reading aloud uh, if you would like to do that. Um, I'm going to recommend Jane Austen's Emma because my husband and I were reading it aloud to each other as we were kind of 
falling in love and whatever. It's great. Um, and then I'm going to recommend uh, the plow title, Sex, God, and Marriage. There are many, many, many other very, very good books, um, but those are a couple. Pete, what do you have to recommend? So I think that in today's social environment where ideas of romance and love and the married life are pretty far from a real robust Christian understanding of those things. It's often helpful to kind of jump outside of our present moment um, and take something that may feel a bit more dated. Um, so this is one book that meant a lot to my present wife and me when we were preparing for marriage. Your present wife. Uh, yeah, my only wife. Um, but we've been married for 18 years. She wasn't then. Um, and it is by the Catholic philosopher Dietrich von Hildebrand in defense of purity an analysis of the Catholic ideals of purity and virginity. It's recently been republished. Uh, it's just a beautiful book that I think helps us to kind of jump outside of this sort of post-sexual revolution approach to this stuff and really um, reflect on what the married life is all about. Uh, and then I was going to also recommend the book by Johann Christoph Arnold, who happens to be my uncle uh, and was a longtime Brito of pastor. He died a few years ago, uh, published by Plow, Sex, God, and Marriage. Uh, the title kind of says what it's about, and it's just very, very solid. It has uh, a forward by both Mother Teresa and by uh, Benedict XVI, and is just a very good, solid book that points back to scripture uh, and covers just a wide range of things from, you know, getting to know each other, finding a partner, you know, to questions of, you know, having babies and uh, how one approaches the different, the different things that, you know, uh, present themselves to a couple trying to make their way in a society where Christian ideas of marriage uh, are not taken for granted. Excellent. And we will drop links to all of those books in the show notes. Um, and I will read that Dietrich von, von Hildebrandt book because I have not yet done that. Uh, okay. So for our, for our final question and, you know, wrapping up this huge epic vows related plowcast series, it's our final question from friend of the pod, Henry Wallace, which is not his real name, but that's what he is on Twitter. Um, you know, David Bentley, Hart, Stan, um, Orthodox Christian. I believe he lives in the south of France. Very good cook. Um, I've actually talked to him on the phone because once we were having this like incredibly heated Twitter argument and I was like, I think we should just talk on the phone because otherwise we're going to be stupid on Twitter. Um, he asks, what is your favorite cooking spice? Pete, what is your favorite cooking spice? Okay, so I'm going to go back to sort of my um, family roots here in Thuringia in Germany. And my favorite cooking spice is a combination of allspice and caraway. And you can use that in virtually everything. It's awesome in any meat marinade. It's great with, uh, you know, fried potatoes. It's good on just about anything. Um and it's good in baking. It's good in, you know, 
cookies and cakes and whatever. Like you throw that stuff in anything, it's just really, really good. Um, of course, like pork is anything to do with pork, whether raw pork or... Um, you eat raw pork? Oh, yeah, you eat raw pork. Um, fresh ground raw pork with some of this stuff mixed in, an egg yolk, some raw onions, some pickles, some capers. You put that on some fresh bread. It's wonderful. Are you, um, oh, but, okay. you, but you can also do it with cooked pork if that oh, scares you. I'm, yeah. Well, this has been fun. <laughs> this has been extremely fun. Um, Pete, uh, it's been great as usual. Uh, listeners, we will see you again, hear you. You'll hear us. We'd like to hear you. You guys gotta, you guys gotta like tweet at us more. You guys gotta ask us more questions because otherwise it'll just be like Henry asking questions about spices. Um, not that that was bad. Anyway, so write, ask us questions. Follow me on Twitter. Follow Pete on Twitter. Ask him like relationship advice, and all the best. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast needs met, and share with your friends. For a lot more content like this, check out plow.com for the digital magazine. You can also subscribe. $36 a year will get you the print magazine. Or for $99 a year, you can become a member of Plow. That membership carries a whole range of benefits, from free books to regular calls with the editors, to invitations to special events, and the occasional gift. Our members are one aspect of the broader Plow community, and we depend on them as a kind of extra advisory council. Go to plow.com to learn more. That's it for this series, but be sure to tune in next week and for the next five weeks after that for Plow Reads. Those are audio versions of several of our top articles. And then we'll see you back here in six weeks with our next series of the Plowcast covering our upcoming issue on Generations. See you then.